Welcome to The Sober Effect, a show that looks at the positives of sobriety, the dangers of alcohol and the many people who are affected by it. I'm Kate. And I'm Steph. The ripple effect of alcohol is far-reaching, and those are the stories you'll hear on The Sober Effect. Episode 23, and today's episode, we talk about grief, and we talk about it in the sense of grieving as a drinker and then grieving sober, because there is a contrast in that. And our guest today is Sophie, and you know, unfortunately, Sophie has had a lot of grief in her life, more than most people have to bear, and she shares all of that with us, um, and we are so grateful that she came on and was vulnerable and and did that because her story and how she beautifully states the before and after, like she's grieved with alcohol and without, she does such a great job of telling us the differences and how it's helped her cope better being sober, feeling more connected. Luckily, it's not anything I've had to deal with, and it is definitely something that I am really scared of happening because it's the one thing I've always said, and I don't know about you, Steph, but I've always said the only thing that might tip me over, and it's probably quite a dangerous thing to say because I'm almost preempting it happening, is you know the death of a loved one and dealing with that without alcohol when that's what I've turned to on a much lower level when I'm dealing with grief or upset or trauma or things like that, you know, People tend to just drink because it's the only way you can just instantly shut things down. But as we know, nothing goes away. You still have to deal with it. So in a way, I think it kind of prolongs it. And that's the interesting thing about this conversation is that when you step back from it and really look at the situation, we think alcohol is the easy way and we think it's helping, but it actually does the opposite, doesn't it? It does do the opposite. I unfortunately experienced grief. My aunt died the first week of sobriety. You know, she wasn't sick. She lived alone. She was found in her kitchen by her boyfriend. She had been there a couple days, had passed away. I mean, it's just the most gut-wrenching thing to go through, to think about, you know, someone being alone in their final moments like that and no one there to help them. I just remember thinking to myself, I need sobriety like more than ever right now. I just, I need to be there for my dad because my dad and her were close and he was the closest relative to her. And being a week sober, as people would know, you're still like a like a newborn deer. You know, your legs yeah. are wobbly and it wouldn't take much. But I remember it took everything I had to one, allow myself to feel it. I just remember the shock and then just I told my husband, I was like, I, I just need a minute. And I went into the bedroom and I was I just sat and cried. And I've lost grandparents and things like that. And as a drinker, I would never allow that. I would have started drinking and was like, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be there for everybody. I'm not going to grieve. And to me, there's beauty in the grief. There's beauty mm-hmm. in being sad for losing someone. You're honoring yeah. the loss of them. And to try to drown that out with alcohol, to me now just seems like the wrong thing to do. And it's a really bloody sad thing. You need to cry. 
Mm-hmm. It's awful, especially when people die too young. Yeah. I mean, when someone dies age 90 in their sleep, you know, surrounded by their family, that's one thing. But when they die too young and you lose them, it is horrible. It is sad. It's heartbreaking. And actually, as you say, you need to break down. You need to cry. And whenever you feel like it, you need to sit there and go, you know, I need to remember them in the future. That means a year, two years, three years later. As you say, it's so healthy. And I don't know why people feel like you've just said that they've got to be there for everyone else. And they don't think they deserve that amount of care and attention and support themselves because there are some of us out there who immediately put other people first. We're very Mm -hmm. empathetic. We think about the people we love and how they're dealing with it. And we instantly go into support mode. But actually there's something to be said for for giving yourself that support and saying, I need some support because you are stronger and you've also got to go through these things. Were you tempted to drink when that happened? Or did you think it's made my resolve even stronger? No, I wasn't tempted to drink. There was a thought of how am I going to get through this without drinking? But it wasn't the type of like, how am I going to get through this without drinking because I want to drink? It was how am I going to get through this without drinking because I've already made my mind up that I'm not drinking. And I know that I can get through this. Like this was a test. I really do feel like, you know, this was a big test at the beginning because we had to go back home where I was from. And that is all about drinking. And I wasn't ready to go home. I was just telling people I was doing dry January. Like I wasn't ready to have this conversation, but we didn't go home to socialize and party like we normally would. Like we went home to support my dad, to help clean her place out, to do those things. So there was that distraction there. And I I felt so present and fully like in touch with the situation because if I would have drank, I would have been groggy. I wouldn't have felt well, like there would have been all of those things happening in the background and it just takes you out of touch with what's going on in reality. And your emotions are everywhere, aren't they? I Mm -hmm. mean, you can't control because the more drunk you get, the more emotional you get and you can't manage them as well. And in a way, that's a good thing because you let them out, but also they come out. And as Sophie said, they come out in different times. And then the next day people are coming up to you and going, gosh, you were so upset last night what can I do? And you're like, I really don't want to talk about this. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't want that to come out in that situation. Now I've got all these people coming up to me and I just want them to leave me alone. I want privacy. I want to be able to deal with this. And so you've then got all of that uncomfortable stuff and you're not allowed to grieve. A lot of people won't have dealt with this level of trauma that you've dealt with and that Sophie's dealt with. But it's also smaller things, isn't it? Things like losing your job or having an argument with a friend or a a relationship breakup. And it's trauma or upset or an an emotional kind of wave. Those kind of things we deal with with alcohol. It's also a bad idea to deal with those by kind of downing two bottles of wine. Because what happens to you? I mean, what actually happens to you when you get plastered because you're upset? I mean, let's just talk about that for a second, because in my experience, I go into some sort of crazy mode where things are happening and I'm laughing one minute, crying the next, I'm getting angry. All the embarrassment and shame are still in there. I'm not managing to deal with the actual problem that is the point, you know, and if I was breaking up with a boyfriend, I'd go out and I'd kiss some other guy or I'd or I'd call an ex-boyfriend because I wasn't thinking straight and it was absolutely not the right thing to do. And then I'm creating more drama for myself to have to deal with and it becomes even more overwhelming. Why is it that we used drinking? Why It's that short-term gain again, isn't it? It is. We think so much about the next few hours 
but not the long term in the next few days. Why do we do that? Yeah. And like for me, it was like pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down. Like I thought alcohol helped me control the feeling. I really thought it helped me get rid of it. I really did. Because it would come back, like you said, it would come back, but it was never like within a few days. I feel like it would come back later as an anxiety attack. Like I wouldn't even know why I was having it. Like that's how far I pushed mine down. Like bad. I don't cry. I don't. It was bizarre to me how well I was using alcohol to push this stuff down. The sad thing is the anxiety definitely stems from these suppressed emotions. 100%. And after getting sober, I have had to unravel and I've had to deal with these emotions now. Like they come up now. There's things I feel incredibly sad out of nowhere for the last two years. And it's what's going on. They don't go away. They don't go away. I mean, as much as I thought they did, they don't. I've, I've had to grieve things from my past like breakups and things that I literally did not ever act like it bothered me because I used alcohol. Because it's a process. It's a yeah. process. It's a known process. And I didn't... There are grief counselors who specifically deal with this. And if you don't go through the process, you don't go through the process. I mean, for me, I was drinking and I think I then created so much drama that that became the top of my pile I've got to deal with. I've got to deal with the mess of last night. I've got to apologize to them. I've got to deal with the fact I've got to get my hungover ass out of bed and get to work. So I almost created more crap to deal with so that I didn't have to focus on the thing. But that's incredibly dangerous because it means that something that is really affecting me, I'm going out and making worse things happen and going into survival mode, which was the mode I felt most comfortable in because I was always in it. Yeah. And dealing with it that way. And for you, you were pushing it down and down and down. And it's ignoring it's, both of these are avoidance tactics, aren't yep. they? Ignoring it. I didn't want people to talk to me about it. I don't want to pretend like I'm weak, that I can't handle these things. And it's so sad. Like that version of me, when I think about her now, that is just so sad because I deserve to have these feelings. I deserve to feel lost. Because you only can feel lost if you had something that you really loved. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. It's part of the human experience. And it's a part that's really hard. But it's, to me, it has to come full circle. Like you said, you have to go through the stages of grief like you to get on the other side and actually feel the appreciation for what you lost. Yeah. And you're doing a disservice to the person or the thing or the yes. event. If you just pretend it doesn't matter, because what are you saying about the whole situation? I'm curious, did you actually manage when you were drunk and you were clearly upset about something and you say you could push it back and push it down? How did you not let it spill out? How did you have the control when you were drunk? Because I don't even remember the things that I used to say when I was drunk. I could just about manage to get myself home, but everything would come out. So I'm really, that's very different to me because I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had tried. If I had had to do it, I would not have been capable of it. Yeah. So it's very different. It is very different. But like I said, I think that's why I would have the physical reaction of anxiety. Right. You know, you can't Because you that. knew it was there. You knew what you It was there. Like I pushed it down into my body and my body physically was like, okay, if you're not going to deal with this, like if you're not going to think about it and you're not going to mm-hmm. cry or you're not going to scream or yell or do whatever emotion I needed to do to move it out, then we're just going to have a panic attack. We're just going to yeah. freak out for no reason. 
I really do know that that's why I was so yeah. anxious all the time. Well, the body is amazing, isn't it? Because it it, is. it's very clever and it, it knows things. Even when your brain is saying, don't want to deal with mm-hmm. it. I'm okay. That's not okay. Your body will say, nah, you're lying to yourself. Yep. And I'm just going to remind you that I know. And it's it's wonderful. And that's kind of what we've said before about all emotions is so important because fear is so important because if you're scared, it means you're in a dangerous situation. It's your body and your mind is saying, get out, be alert. Something's not right. Sadness is saying you've lost something. You're going to go through a process now, you know, and we all try and get happiness all the time, but you only get happiness if you deal with all those other emotions that they all come together um, in life. And they all mean something and they're all, you should be grateful for them all. And that sounds crazy, but you have to be. But I think when it comes to grieving, you really do need to be compass mentis. You need to have your wits about you. Because I think as we've heard from many of our guests who have had some awful situations, Mm -hmm. they've gone through some awful traumas, it will just carry on and it will linger for years and years and it will develop into some other very unhealthy characteristics mm-hmm. and habits because you're constantly trying to push it back or send it away. And actually, I have friends who have awful traumas that they have not dealt with and they're in their 40s. And they've said to me, I'm not ready to deal with it because I need to be on my own. I need to have the support network and therapy around me. And as long as I don't say those words out loud and admit what happened to me, I can keep those things suppressed. Mm. So they're super aware of what they're doing. I mean, it's so complex. The brain is so complex to the point where they can express to me that they're not doing it. They know they're drinking too much. They can't cope with it. They need to be in the right place because they know that they'll fall apart. And you just think, surely the sooner you deal with this, the better, because you can start to rebuild yourself. You can you can start to try and understand things and give yourself that compassion and that support. But support is a hard thing, Steph, because in the UK, if you don't have enough money to get any sort of therapy, I mean, I've got friends who have been raped who have mm. tried to get therapy and they've been given between one and three free sessions from the NHS. Now that's not enough. That doesn't no. even break the ice. And you no. can't expect someone to open up to someone who you know you're never going to be able to speak to again. What's the point? And that's something that I think either whether it's friends or or communities or groups or private therapy, that is an element that is essential. And that's that's what's missing a lot of the time here and people are on their own and the only way they can deal with it is drinking. I think it's true here too. I mean, it's very expensive. I'm lucky my husband has great health insurance and so I have a therapist and it's affordable, but there are people that don't have affordable health insurance here in the US and it's the same thing. That is exactly why they don't go. And it is, it is more convenient to go down to the corner store and buy a bottle and sit by yourself and medicate it's so much easier and it's socially acceptable. You got to remember too, there's a lot of people who think going to therapy is a sign of weakness, but being able to drink a, a 30 pack of beer with the boys is you're a hero, you're masculine, you're tough, you're strong. So that doesn't help either, right? Like nobody no. wants to be seen as weak. They want to be seen as strong. So there's just a lot of narrative around ill feelings, like 
feeling sad and all of that. It's just, there's such a stigma and there's just such a, you know, you don't want to be labeled that way. And it comes also from like, I also didn't want other people feeling sorry for me. Like I don't like people worrying about me. I don't want people to feel like they have to give me a hug and say, I'm so, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And let me ask you a question. If you thought your daughter or your husband were upset, but they didn't say anything because they didn't want to worry you, how would that make you feel? Yeah, it made me feel awful. Awful. It's like, that's what I'm here for. And we've got to remember that about ourselves. Mm -hmm. People love us. They care about us. And by hiding these emotions, they don't know what we're going through. And that's where it gets really dangerous. There is nothing wrong with saying, I need some love. I need need support. I need advice. I just need mm-hmm. to cry. I don't want you to say anything. Can you just come around and can we watch three films in a row? And can I just cry? But I just want to know someone's there. All these things are absolutely fine. And if a friend asked me to do that, I would be there in a heartbeat. And oh, I would yeah. be so privileged that they had asked me. And I think we have to think about that and think, what would I expect my friends to do if they were in that situation? And we have to stop keeping all of this in because it is healthy to cry. It's healthy to lean on people when you need them. You know, we need support. We all need support. I, th- I think Sophie's story really does highlight that perfectly, doesn't it? It does. Let's uh, let's hear from Sophie. Can't say I had a hugely happy childhood, sadly. Um, My parents uh, were both married before and met each other and had an affair and got married. So there were half brothers and sisters on both sides. So I'm actually the youngest of six. My dad had bipolar and my mum was, I was scared of my mum. She shouted a lot and she, I was basically brought up by my eldest sister, Jo. Thank God for Jo. I say that a lot. So I wasn't really a big drinker in my teenage years. My dad and I went for a day trip to see his aunt who lived in Bedford and we had the day with them and we were coming back so we went up there by train and my dad was getting chest pains so he he had angina but he didn't want to have any exploratory surgery or anything you know this was like 30 years ago so it was a bit different to how it is now and I think he was probably scared looking back. But um, yeah, so we were on the way back to the train station. He was having these pains. I was telling him to slow down. Long and short of it is we got to the platform station and he was in pain. You know, I, I didn't really understand what was going on. He sat down and he said, can you go? We missed the train. He said, go and find out when the next train is. When I came back, he'd had a massive cardiac arrest and he died there and then. I was you know, on the platform station screaming, then the ambulance came. I, I remember every single second of it. And I was there just not knowing what to do. I didn't know CPR. Obviously, then I was filled with regret for years and years. I could have done something to help, but there wouldn't have been anything I could do. Then I was in the ambulance. Then I was at the hospital. Then they were saying, go in and identify your dad. And I was still not understanding what was going on. And I walked in and there was my dad lying in this chapel of rest with this big red velvet thing over him. And it was literally, it was like I was in a TV program. I was so traumatized and in shock. I just, I didn't know what was going on. I really didn't. I stood there, I talked to him, I was crying. I remember it all like it was yesterday. And then I bent over and um, I kissed him and his cheek was cold and I was just in pieces. And they drove me, the police actually drove me back to London because I was in Bedford. It was just me and him. So I was by myself. 
that was my bombshell of a life moment that changed me. It changed me forever. You know, before that, I just started university. I was carefree and I was plunged into this. It wasn't even grief because I did not grieve. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't access it at all. I just, I said to my close friends, I want to go back to university and please can you tell everybody I don't want to talk about it. I didn't want anyone even mentioning it. And I went back and that's when my drinking revved up a, a notch because I realized that I could drink and it will just sort of put a blanket over my head for a bit, just calm the sort of thought. So much of it was regret about my relationship with him. Why hadn't I spent more time with him? Why hadn't I been able to do something? You know, why why couldn't I do CPR? You know, I was with him. I should have told him to slow down more. You know, all these awful, awful things that were going around in my head. And I didn't talk about it with anyone. My mom couldn't talk about him anyway because she was just grieving herself. And, yeah, it was awful. But as I said, luckily, I had a really close group of friends who understood that I just didn't want to talk about it. But what happened was I didn't grieve him. And I know this because I was just in shock. I was definitely just in shock for so long. I I would walk down the street and this was like months later, maybe even years later, and think I saw him, saw the back of his head, and I'd think it was him, which I know is a sign that I had I hadn't processed any of it. And when I did speak about it, and I did sometimes with those very close friends, it would always be when I was drunk. And then the next day. I would feel really exposed. I really regret sharing any of it because I just felt so, so vulnerable and so exposed. And, you know, I can't tell you, I can just remember definitely more than five times locking myself in, you know, going out clubbing. I was always out drinking, clubbing, you know, drink, drink, drink. And then I'd be on a dance floor and suddenly it would creep in. And I would go into a loo and I'd close the door and I would just be in there in pieces crying and, you know, not being able to process it. And, oh, it was just awful. It was horrible. It was horrible. And it took it took a long, long time before I could talk about it. I had no support system of knowing how to begin to process that kind of trauma. I didn't even really know what trauma was. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because people often talk about alcohol as a truth serum. And actually, I was thinking it's not actually the truth. What's happening is I've got emotions and I've got thoughts that I've buried and they're coming out in really peculiar over-exaggerated kind of in these incredible bursts of emotion that are coming out but they're not I'm not in control of them and they're coming out a bit jumbled and they're quite scary and, and I completely get what you say about the next day you just want to and I and I'm talking about for different reasons for me it was embarrassing because I would be angry about something else or something that happened when I was younger would come up and it would make me act a certain way. But the next day you just think, oh God, I just want to go back to where I was in that cocoon where I was in control. But alcohol breaks that barrier down. It makes you think you're okay to talk about things. And it's it, it makes you so vulnerable, doesn't it? And you just sit there going, oh God, I just wish it had never happened. But it does demonstrate that there is something inside of you that hasn't been dealt with, doesn't it? Definitely, absolutely. I mean, if anyone did bring it up, and it did happen, bless them, to a few people who hadn't got the memo that no one was allowed to mention that I just reappeared back at university and my dad had dropped down dead, you know, a few people who did say to me, oh, I'm so sorry to hear. 
And I was floored by it, you know, really floored. I was building up this very effective, I thought, brick wall to protect me. You know, I had no emotional regulation at that point. So I was very unpredictable. I didn't know how I was going to feel. I didn't know how I was going to react. So I just dealt with it by just shutting down. I have a question in regards to that. Why do you suppose you did that as far as not wanting anyone to talk to you about it? Was it a protecting of you or was it protecting of others? Because for me, when I hear that, if I'm grieving or I'm sad, I don't want anyone to know because there was this part of me that was like, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I don't Uh, want you to take on any of this emotion because it's, it's bad enough for me. I don't want you to have to do it. Is that why you were protecting others from the emotion that you were feeling? Yeah, it was a bit of both. Certainly with my family, I didn't want to talk to them about it because there was so much, oh, poor Sophie, that she was there. And I was thinking, no, not poor me. I was, you know, I was there and I couldn't do anything. So I didn't want, I didn't want their sympathy. It sounds like this is the only way you could deal with the situation. And actually that's what people have to do because when you are in, something like this and it's this traumatic you have to just stay alive basically and focused and get through every step however you can you don't suddenly go right now how am I going to deal with this let me think how it's like no I just need to be able to get through today and go to sleep and and not fall apart after a couple of years did you reflect back and did you think Maybe I need to deal with this. Maybe I haven't properly dealt with this. Or did you just think it's working for me? I'm still not dealing with it. I'm just going to carry on. I mean, I knew it wasn't a healthy way of of processing it, but I didn't know how to. But um, I had my eldest sister, Jo. I thank God for Jo, I'll say it. (laughs) But yeah, generally into my 20s and 30s, the times when I would talk about him or talk about the trauma of it was when I was drunk. Joe always just used to say to me, you never get over it. You just learn to live with it. And that's exactly what happened. And you know what? And I will say this because it is absolutely true. I think it was absolutely awful. You know, my dad was only 60 and it was the worst thing that ever happened to me uh, at this point. But fast forward to three and a half years ago and my sister, like a year and a half older than me, we were very close growing up. The lockdown had started COVID and we were in lockdown and she had a lot of stomach pain. She was really complaining about being in a lot of pain. And um, she self-diagnosed herself to have um, IBS. Um, we had a row because I was saying, you've got to ring the doctor. This is ridiculous. And she was saying, oh, I know what's wrong with me you know, sort of a sibling row. And then the next thing, um, she texts me saying, the doctor came around, I'm in an ambulance, I'm on the way to, you know, Bristol Hospital. So amazingly, by at this point, I had a couple of years sobriety under my belt, you know, I'd managed to stop drinking. And thank God for that, because I was able to get in the car, get up to Bristol and be there, you know, dealing with doctors, dealing with all these really difficult decisions she was making. And I saw her that day. They didn't know what was wrong with her. So I came back to London and got a phone call very late at night from a nurse who said, she's taken a a turn for the worst. I think you better come back up. And I was like, I don't understand. What do you mean? 
you know, I just didn't, um, I, there was no way that this was happening. You know, I just, they, it was, it was totally bizarre. And um, I got back up there, had a meeting with the consultant and he told me that they'd done some blood tests and she was riddled with this very aggressive cancer that had started in her um, uterus or cervix, I think. And it was in her bones, in her spine, in her blood. It was everywhere. And that there was nothing they could do for her. And that we just needed to keep her comfortable for her to die. And so, again, amazingly, going back to my sobriety, there was, there was no bone in my body that even thought about drinking at this point because I needed to be in control. I needed to be there for my sister. And amazingly, even though it was the start of COVID and there was like one visitor in, one visitor out, they let my sister and I, Joe, luckily Joe lived in Bristol as well. And the two of us sat with her, slept with her. You know, we just we were just there. We stayed there until sadly her last breath. But she wasn't conscious from the time when that one day I had with her. And then when I came back up, she was unconscious and she um, she died just over a week after she'd gone into hospital. You know, as hard as that whole situation would have been, being sober during it, I'm sure in contrast, when you're sober during something like that, when you're sober doing anything, right, there's less regret because you don't have that, oh, God, I was drinking. Could I have done something different? And you still have, can I do something different even when you're sober? But it's just, there's a forgiveness that mm -hmm. comes. When you're a drinker, you never forgive yourself for things. Like you hold on to it a little bit more because you're like, you know, I was drinking. And, and then the negative effect that just has on your mind anyway, and it's a depressant. But you went through two very traumatic deaths but you went through them in like completely different frames of mind. And now, you know, all these years later, do you do a lot of reflecting on that? Do you do a lot of reflecting well, on the two? You're a wise woman, aren't you, Steph? What I've written in big letters, underlined in mm. capital is regret. So to not have that regret and hate of myself I can't explain to you to be not only present there for her, but to be able to talk to her, to be able to tell her I loved her, to be able to, you know, sing to her, read to her, not leave her side, tell her that because she was so proud of um, me not drinking. So to be able to say to her, I'm not going to drink. This isn't going to make me drink. It's making me do the opposite. I've got to honor my body. Her body was disappearing in front of my eyes you know, we've got to do everything we can to um, appreciate the lives that we have. And it was just a cruel, cruel thing to happen because she now I've overtaken her in age. So I'm 50. She was 49 and never made it to her 50th birthday, you know, and it's just it's just all wrong. She'd laugh at the fact that when I start getting old, she's still, you know, photos of her are still all like young and and beautiful and I can hear oh it's a lovely thing actually you know I was thinking this this morning because I had a dream about my dad last night I think because I knew I was going to do this podcast and when I woke up this morning I thought oh, I must tell you guys because I want to tell people who are worried about grief I remember when my dad first died thinking I've got such a shit memory I'm going to forget what he looks like what he sounds like what his laugh sounds like and for 
my sister and for my dad. And sadly, <laughs> I'll move on to my mum in a minute. Um, I can picture them like they're sitting next to me. You know, my dad died 30 years ago. I can see his face. I can hear his laugh. I can, And I, I reflect. I think I said this on a, um, on a post I did the other day. I, I do this with my dad. I do it a lot with my sister because actually, <laughs> similar to you guys, that she was very wise and she'd always have excellent advice for me. So I, and I knew her inside out. So if I'm going through something, I think to myself, what would Becca say? And I always know what she'd say. And so that isn't just my imagination. That's her living inside me, you know, and I do feel like that. And I I feel her closeness. And that was ripped apart from me when I when I drank. I could I, you know, I wasn't in touch with of anything, with anything like that. You lose connections. Everything feels like it's kind of got this kind of smog around it, doesn't it? Yeah. You- Nothing's clear and you can't decipher from reality and and what you might have imagined sometimes. I mean, it really is like something from a horror film when you when you talk about being that drunk and you can't remember. And I've often said I've gone through years and years where I I can't remember the name, the surname of a boy I lived with for a year. I can't remember his surname. I lived with him. He was my boyfriend. I mean, what? It's crazy, isn't it? But, it's crazy. You're right. But that whole spiritual and, and feeling grounded and, and saying, I'm going to bring you in. You're part of me. I'm proud of who I am. I remember who you are. You know, we've got the same blood going through our veins. That counts for something. You've taught me stuff. That's what happens in life. You pass things down. You remember things. You pass them down to your children. So yeah. they never disappear. And, and that is a really special thing to have and, and to appreciate and to acknowledge and to feel and I think you know that's that's wonderful and that's some really lovely advice to people who might be going through a recent death of a loved one I think to say you can keep things from it you can take things from it and you will remember I think that's lovely yeah absolutely literally a week to the day after my sister died it was around my mum's birthday I was having this ongoing discussion with her about not going out and but she'd still go down in the morning to the local Tesco's to get her milk and her bread and come back up and wouldn't do the hand washing thing and I couldn't get hold of her so I went down to see her and she she was okay but she was there was she was just a bit more off she was starting to go slightly senile but not really she'd just repeat herself a little bit and that night I said to James it's just not right because I tried to ring her and I couldn't get hold of her Next day, I drove back down, went round to her house. She was still in her nighty, and she was just not making any sense at all. And I thought she'd had a stroke because she just she was sort of going, "Oh, darling, oh, you know." Just she was just away with the fairies, like she was really drunk. She wasn't a big drinker, so I rang an ambulance. They came, went to the hospital. They did some blood tests. I mean, I'm laughing because it is so ridiculous. The next thing, the curtains coming round, the consultants in saying that mum has a cancer that has spread to her organs and she's, again, riddled with it. And she died three weeks later. I would say, actually, that I've processed that death, even though it was only a couple of years ago, a lot better than my, if there's a word better, I'm I'm processing it. So you know what? I would compare in my brain, if I think of my emotions, my body housing my emotions, if there were two houses, if there was like um, grief, sober grief, 
would be me in a little beach house in sunny somewhere or other. And I can go through the, the emotions when I choose and I can softly cry and softly feel them and pick them up and put them down and just be gentle with my emotions. That's how I would describe my grief for my sister and for my mum. I find it harder for my sister because I feel still like my heart's been ripped out. But it's a gentleness. I had six months where I decided I would drink again. And my grieving in that period for my sister was like a haunted house. So I was so dysregulated. I was scared of my own shadow. And I just, my emotions were so all over the place. And it was awful. I didn't have any spiritual connection with her. I was just in a dark, dark hole with that bottle again. And that's why I say to you, you know, about regret. Addiction loves regret. That wine bottle could have strangled me around the neck with saying to me, you know, it's your fault or anything. It's, it's just, it's all the evil side of it. And I think that that actually is quite a good way of describing my emotions, drinking through grief rather than not drinking through grief is alcohol did absolutely nothing to help, you know, nothing, nothing at all. It just closed the dam for one second and then it's all just still all there. And even for someone who hasn't experienced it, I completely understand what you're saying. And it's almost yeah. like it's it's going to help me when I have to go through this because I'll remember what you're saying. And these these two descriptions at the end, I absolutely love oh, them. The metaphor I, of the I, houses. I imagine yeah. sitting in, in like a house with one of those old fashioned kettles on the on the hob with my blanket remembering compared to, as you say, a haunted house where you walk around every corner and there's something else horrific or scary. And actually it's dark in there and it stinks and, and no one wants to be in there and you're not resolving. I think it's it's absolutely perfect. It really is, I want to use the word beautiful to honor and grieve someone sober. You know, she talks about the two houses and like even you mentioned, you know, it's scary. Like when you're drinking and it amplifies those bad emotions, it's scary. It's it's not a good feeling. But when you can sit and honor someone and even like she said, feel connected, like she felt connected to her sister spiritually when yeah. she wasn't drinking. I mean, how beautiful is that to know that they're still with you and you can feel it because we did a whole episode on spirituality and yeah. alcohol has you vibrating so low that you can't connect to anybody on a spiritual level. And that in itself for me is like comfort to know that your loved ones who have passed, they're like still with you and you can get signs from them or you can just feel them. Like that to me is just enough to want to stay sober. Well, it's, it amplifies everything, doesn't it? Because mm -hmm. it's like love and sex and laughter and going for walks and opening presents and, and meeting babies for the first time that belong to your best friends and all things like that. They're all much more crystal clear when you're sober. Whereas when you're drinking, there's that kind of thin layer that covers everything. Thing. It doesn't allow you to feel things fully. And, you know, that's something that we've both noticed since we've been sober, that our emotions are so much stronger. And of course, that means all the good emotions. And it also means the bad ones. But there's something raw about that. And as you say, mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of, these are people that meant something to you. And when I die, I don't want people to go around getting hammered and, and no. hurting themselves and 
sleeping with people they don't like and falling down and all this different stuff. I want them to remember me and to cry and to talk about me and then to smile and then to kind of move on because they have to move on at their own pace and really feel and really remember and and come back to that and those thoughts. And those memories are made when you're sober as well. And I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, I can't remember a lot of the interactions I've had with family members, with friends, with boyfriends, because I've been drunk. Mm -hmm. So actually, in the last two years, the memories I've got are crystal clear. And when it does come to the point of me wanting to remember people or remember my life, I'm going to be able to do that so much better. And I know that's a bit off topic, but everything makes more sense, doesn't it? The building blocks fit together and they're easier to navigate because you can take steps and you know where you're going and you know it's going to be painful, but you know that's normal and that's okay. And I think you can talk yourself around a lot of these really uncomfortable and awful situations when you've got a clear, focused mind and you're in in control of your emotions rather than just completely all over the place. Yeah. And it gets you stuck. So alcohol can get, I think about like the five, like you were, as you were talking, the five stages of grief. Mm -hmm. And then I was thinking about, you know, when Sophie's telling her story, especially the one with her dad. And as she's telling the story, I can hear her going through those stages, like the first one's denial and then anger. And then you get to the bargaining. And I feel like alcohol, when you get to the bargaining, alcohol stops you right there. And it's like, that's where Mm. it wants you because that's where regret is setting in. Oh my God. If I just would have, you know, she was talking about that. You know, if I wouldn't have left him there, if I wouldn't have done this, if I wouldn't have done that. And then as she was drinking, it just kept her there. It just held her there. Like, we're going to stay right here because that's where alcohol wants you. Yeah. Because that's where it knows that you need it. And so to know that when you're sober and you know the five stages of grief and you know that like that last one is acceptance and that if you can just stay clear of alcohol, that you can work your way through all of those and get to that one at the end. You're going to come out feeling so much better. You're going to feel like you honored that person. And there's going to be none of that bargaining and that regret because no matter how much we want to save people or not lose people, it's part of life. Everyone's going to die. We all are going to have to deal with this at some point in our life. It's just the way it is. And so to make it so much more easier on yourself. I mean, that's just staying away from alcohol, in my opinion. Yeah. And talk to people or or be on your own or do whatever you want. But you're so right about alcohol wanting the self-loathing and the regret and the shame that you have just on a normal, regular basis, the way that alcohol makes you feel that way. If there's even an inkling that you might feel guilty about something that's happened it's just gonna go catastrophic isn't it because it's already there and as you say alcohol is gonna make you go it's me it's my fault I could have done this and it's just gonna snowball out of control because you can't talk yourself down from the cliff edge can you because you're drunk basically and things don't make sense you're not making sense you're not being logical that all goes completely out of the window and that's it I think when you're trying to resolve a problem the best way to do that is logically. And we've all got friends who are very logical and we go to them when we want, hit me with it. Tell me the facts. Tell me I'm being stupid. 
And it's because they are logical about it. It's not because they're whimsical or they're going to go, well, it probably was your fault. And have you thought about this? Or, oh my God, just don't worry. It's fine. It's not. It's because they're going to go, this is what is happening. And that's why we go to those people. But you can't be that person to yourself if you're drunk. You can't get, you can hardly walk straight let alone keep your thoughts in order. So how the hell are you meant to get through sadness and trauma when you're pissed? It's just, it's never going to happen. Look, grief is going to be hard. It's going to be sad. It's going to be really difficult, but you can get through it without a drink. And everyone we've spoken to has said it's easier. And that's really all we can go on, isn't it, Steph? You've got an experience of it very early on in sobriety. And I'm, I have so much respect for you for doing that because a week in is, is, as you say, very unstable ground. And it's amazing that you managed to do that. And you must feel really proud of yourself for that. But everyone we've spoken to has just said, don't do it. It makes it worse. And we have to listen to other people because they've, they've gone through it. So if you are going through something and you think drinking is going to help you, please, please do not pick up that drink and just try and make it through the day and through the night and call someone and talk to them because good friends will be able to talk you through anything. And they give really good hugs as well. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be like me. Don't be like Steph. Don't push it down. Seriously, do not be like Steph. Even if you don't want to cry in front of someone, hop in the shower. I love (laughs) crying in the shower now, by the way. You've still got some work to do, Steph, on this. (laughs) You only cry in the shower where there's already liquid going down the plug hole. Now we need you standing on the front drive next time. Baby steps, okay? Baby Baby steps. steps. Uh, Well, look, I will speak to you soon. Cheers, Steph. Bye, Kate. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, we're just two women from opposite sides of the pond wanting to bring awareness around the negative effects of alcohol. We are not licensed therapists or doctors. If alcohol is causing any mental or physical health issues, please seek professional help. Please be sure to give us a follow so you don't miss future episodes. If you think our podcast could help someone you know, please be sure to share it. Also, leaving a five-star review will help The Sober Effect reach more people like you. The music for this show was produced and recorded by Pearl and Thumbelina Jim of the wonderful Charm Jar Music. More information can be found in our show notes.